You're listening to Truth and Narrative, the show that cuts through today's media narratives and tries to find the truth. And now your hosts, Will and Gabe. Hey, Will, how are you doing this week? I'm pretty good, Gabe. How are you doing? Oh, man, every day above ground is a good one. Am I right? Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, let's get started on, you know, something that's re- that, that, that really matters recently because we just saw a couple of debates and the election's coming up. And, hey, I wonder if the, if the left is going to pack the court. Is that something they're going to do, and can they do that? So can you talk to us a little bit about the Supreme Court? Well, yeah, sure. This is something that uh, I find interesting as well. It's um, Packing the Supreme Court is probably a fool's errand. But uh, here's a little history. I looked it up. I knew we were going to talk about it, so I looked it up. And the Judiciary Act created the Supreme Court with six justices in 1789. The, um, the founders did not think the Supreme Court should, would or should be as important as it is today. So they created an even number of justices because if a case is so – they figured if a case is so close that it needs a tiebreaker vote, then it probably shouldn't be decided by the Supreme Court. That's my guess. Um, so they had an even number of justices. They, the first session was held in the Royal Exchange Building in New York City. Uh, in 1807, the Supreme Court was finally expanded to seven justices. In 1837, 30 years later, it was expanded to nine. In 1863, nearly 30 years after that, 26 or so, it was expanded to 10, once again giving you an even number of justices, so there could never be a tiebreaker vote. Then in 1869, that's four years after the Civil War, it was fixed by law at nine, and it stayed at nine to this day. Okay, so why nine? What, what's the, why are they going from six to seven to nine, or to ten and nine? What, what is magic about this number? It, it's not a magic number. Now, initially what happened was the Supreme Court justices didn't spend all their time in the Supreme Court. They actually rode through the circuits. They rode circuit court, and they would hear cases along with the circuit judges. They would hear really important cases, like, for instance, Aaron Burr's treason case was presided over by a Supreme Court justice, even though it wasn't a Supreme Court case, because he was riding the circuit for the really high-profile, really important stuff, and also for some appellate, some appeal stuff. The circuits themselves were uh, phased out, were mostly phased out in 1891 when the current appellate circuits were created. And then in 1911, the final remaining duties of those original circuits were absorbed into other federal courts. And so the original circuit system that was created with the Judiciary Act of 1789 was finally dead. But uh, the people who founded the country, who created the Supreme Court, uh, they didn't really see that the court should be spending its time the way it does today. They, they had the justices spending a lot of time writing the circuits, hearing actual cases. They envisioned the Supreme Court as having an even number of justices because the idea that they should be taking cases of such significance where there was such a narrow margin and you'd have a swing vote and a tiebreaker judge was just anathema. So it it, it was very interesting for me researching this and going through this and seeing how it's evolved and how it's come to this position. When when they went back to nine, I'm not sure why they, they went back to nine after the Civil War. I know that this was several years into the period of Reconstruction. 
I, I, I'm wondering if they just felt that replacing that tenth justice would have been too um, divisive, and it was best just to to eliminate that seat and not have the um, not have to go through the confirmation process. But then again, the confirmation process back then it wasn't what it is today. The Supreme Court judges right up until the 20th century didn't have confirmation hearings. They just submitted paperwork and the Judiciary Committee reviewed it. But uh, the, the other thing was there were 10 circuits. The, the, the judges used to ride the circuits. And so your first seat judge would ride the first circuit, et cetera. So when they, they cut out the 10th the, the justice, that was sort of around the time. That was sort of around the time that they um, they started, they stopped having the justices ride the circuits. You see the the... They stopped riding the circuits in 1891. It was 1869 when they cut out the tenth justice, who would have been riding the tenth circuit. So that that's that, that that probably helped enable that either the fact that that was coming down the pike allowed them to eliminate the tenth justice, or the fact that they eliminated the tenth justice spurred that reorganization on. But I, I don't think there's anything particularly magic about the nine justices, the the number nine or the number ten or the number seven or the number six. But I do think it is indicative of the times. And I think that what we see with this precedent, when in 1869 they eliminated the 10th justice, what we see by that precedent is that they also, the Congress also has the power to eliminate justices. So if, if you try to pack the court, if you gain control of Congress and you gain control of the presidency and you try to pass a law that packs the court, the next time the power shifts the other direction, someone might pass a law changing the structure of the court. The Constitution says the justices are appointed for life, sure, but does it say that their votes have to count for life? Once you start, once you start just exercising law power for the sake of I wield it today, you know the fundamental bargain of any republic is that I'm going to allow my adversary to wield power today because at some point I'm going to wield that power and they know that and that's going to temper their hubris when they as they wield it. The, the, once people start packing the court, that, that's eliminating that temperance off their hubris. That, that is unleashing the hubris and when the other side gets that power back, it, it's, it's done. I think that's part okay, of the reason so that... Go ahead. That, a quick, quick question. How easy is it to do that? I mean, is, is, does this not require... Uh, an amendment to the Constitution, or you know, can an executive order? How easy is it to go from, let's say, they went from nine to ten or nine to twelve? Let's say they okay. tried to do that. How would they do this? The Constitution specifies that a Supreme Court ex will exist. It doesn't specify the number of justices. It specifies that Congress shall pass laws to establish the courts and the judiciary. So it would be a regular law passed through Senate, passed through the House, gone through reconciliation uh, or whatever process, and then sent to the president for signature. It would, it would, they could do that by passing a law like any other. It probably couldn't go through the budget process or the reconciliation process uh, specifically, but it would have to. It would have to um, go through all that. Now, what the Democrats are threatening to do is completely eliminate the filibuster in the Senate so that all it would ever take to pass anything is 51-vote majority. And they're threatening to 
do well we've seen them do similar things in the house so they'll just steamroll over any minority however significant and just pass this and send it to the white house for a signature at that point you would still have to go through the confirmation process but their their threats are to change all of the rules so that there can be no meaningful objection in the confirmation process is there any way so let's let's say that they win a majority in the senate but they don't have a veto-proof majority is is that enough for them to change the rules and get rid of the filibuster or can't if they, they the if filibuster, they, the filibuster? Uh, the filibuster is not in the constitution in fact part of parliament uh the filibuster from what i understand is actually an accident it's um somebody was supposed to uh, a vote is supposed to be done in some way before something can go on to a vote uh you know some sort of procedural vote that hey has everyone spoken their piece blah 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 and then if they don't get enough votes on that or if something happens then they can't close out and go to an actual vote on the legislation and so that's how the filibuster was born is someone discovered that oh hey if i just do this thing then nobody can stop me from talking so it was i don't remember the whole story but it was it's it's considered an accident in the parliamentary procedure uh and it, it was just used so effectively on so many different occasions by everyone that that it was considered too important so they kept it and then i think it was a, a rule change in the jefferson administration where, where the filibuster arose but they kept it over time. Eventually, they made some procedural changes in the Senate so that they could conduct ordinary business. So the, you could only filibuster during certain hours, but it would be effective to block legislation, but not to block like ordinary business, like whatever. Um, and yes, it's just an internal Senate rule, and it could be changed with a simple majority vote. Okay. Is the short well, answer to that. Okay. So another question related: What 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 about the the arguments that come from the left? Uh, you know their justification for packing the court in the first place. You know, it's, it's, uh, we have to admit there's a little bit of, slightly a little bit of uh, political hypocrisy when, you know, for example, during the last year of the Obama administration, Mitch McConnell would not allow a vote during an election year. And it seems like they're kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's politics of the game, and he's playing the game very well. But this yeah, for the Democrats, uh, it, it says that, hey, if, if I'm a Democrat, then I'm losing this game, and maybe I want to change the rules. What's, what about that argument? Well, yeah, there, there's a lot to that. So there was extraordinary hypocrisy on the part of the Obama administration with the Merrick Garland appointment, and it was, uh, it was very difficult for uh, McConnell to call it out and stand against it the way he did. So what happened was in 1992, when Joe Biden was the head of the, of the Judiciary Committee, you remember Joe Biden's tenure uh, as head of the Judiciary Committee when he brought us uh, such great hits as uh, Clarence Thomas's "quote unquote" high tech lynching, to, to to quote the justice himself. Yeah, I remember uh, a younger Joe Biden was often in some kind of situation like that. I remember. Yeah, yeah. So in 1992, when George H.W. Uh, Bush was up for re-election, Joe Biden said that if there is a Supreme Court vacancy this year, and uh, then then I will not pass a just I won't the we won't we shouldn't hold a vote on a justice and he was the chair of the judiciary committee he wasn't going to pass any justice through the judiciary committee to get a vote on the senate floor because his reasoning was the senate is controlled by democrats the white house is controlled by republicans the american people should decide with the election 
And when when people looked for a precedent, they, they people were incensed. They looked for precedent. They looked to say this is this is uh, this is wrong. This is terrible power politics. And it, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it, it's definitely power politics. But at the same time, nobody could find a precedent, at least since the Civil War. And we can see that the the, the last major structural change to the Supreme Court was in 1869. So. There's kind of a good, good, good. There's there's kind of an argument for stopping your search for precedence at the Civil War, but there was no instance, at least since the Civil War, when you had a split between the party controlling the Senate and the party controlling the White House, and a a Supreme Court justice was confirmed in a presidential election year. Nobody could find a precedent to tell Biden to shove it. So, all right, well. Biden declared the Democratic position. Biden at least declared the Biden position. And there was no precedent, no way to defend against it. Now, nothing happened in 92. There wasn't a vacant a vacancy didn't emerge in 92, but Biden is on the record. And then come the Obama what administration? The Obama Biden administration? You had in 2006 the Senate flipped. The Senate flipped to Republican control. And now Mitch McConnell doesn't just have Joe Biden's assurances that this is how the Democrats would run this. But he also has the, the argument that he made, which is that the American people have flipped the control of the Senate from one party to the other. They really want the Senate to act as a check on this on this president. And that he saw that as strengthening his argument. And the thing is, just like when Biden pulled this, you can't point to a precedent to say, no, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not the way it's worked in the past, et cetera. And when, when Mitch McConnell made his speech on the Senate, he made clear, he pointed out, he pointed out that this is a two-part test. Is this a presidential election year, and is there a division between who controls the Senate and who controls the Oval Office? Which, which party? In 2008, both of, those, both of those criteria were accurate. In 1992, when Joe Biden coined the, coined the principle, both of those criteria were accurate. In 2020... Only one of those criteria is accurate. It's a two-part test, not a one-part test. There is extraordinary hypocrisy in the whole Merrick Garland thing, but that hypocrisy is in the part of the administration of Joseph Biden. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, you know, why doesn't the right make the case in this logical manner? Uh, wouldn't it be more logical if they were to, to, to bring these things up? or How? Well, how, maybe that's how would they make the case? The, the right can't talk to people. When the president of the United States denounces white supremacists and says, quote unquote, they should be condemned totally, his remarks are edited to make it sound like he called them fine people. You have a White House full of people who are terrified to talk to press while wearing masks because they're afraid of what the press is going to splice into their mouths. You have you have routinely sound bites taken out of context, video doctored. Um, the only way they can talk directly to the people is with 240 characters, and even that's being assaulted by bans and fake fact checks. It is very very frustrating that the right doesn't get these logical arguments, these, these straight out laid out in a precise and orderly fashion. But it's also a product of an extremely corrupt fake press. Well, we still we still got Fox News. Uh, do you though? Uh, Did you, you see that first debate? 
I did. I did. Uh, was that? A, what, 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 did my eyes deceive me, or was that a Fox News anchor who brought up the fine people hoax? Yeah, when, but... when Biden called the Proud Boys white supremacists, the Proud Boys led by a man named Enrique Tarrio, when he called them white supremacists, not only did not only did the moderator not give any pushback, but he, it didn't even occur to him when Biden said Antifa is an idea. It didn't even occur to him to ask, well, is it a good idea? <clears throat> Never mind the ridiculousness of having people beat people over the head with baseball bats and calling them an idea. But is is politic is violent suppression of political speech a good idea? Didn't even occur to him to ask. And that's the Fox News anchor. Hmm. Well, there's another way to look at that. And uh, perhaps the Fox News anchor was serving up a softball, hoping for the president to hit it out of the park, you know? Because it's easy, like, all absolutely, I've seen the whole clip. I know the very fine people. That's a complete media hoax. I know that. But I think Chris Wallace might have been giving Trump an opportunity to clarify that. That's an interesting position. I, I, um, I, I think that's a small question. He could have hit it out of the park. I, 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 I think that uh, Trump was not sufficiently prepared for that debate. And he could have handled it better, but I don't. I don't think Wallace was serving up a softball. I've seen. I saw a previous interview he did with the president where he is so deeply embedded in his blue bubble that he just doesn't recognize statistics that that, that are. Uh, he he has no idea what the president's talking about when he cites positive statistics. Remember the, the interview where they had to bring 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 up different lists of countries and death rates and all that. And Wallace had no yeah. idea what he was talking about because Wallace is ensconced in his New York City cocktail party blue bubble, and he, he just doesn't get exposed to other ideas. You know, Foxwoods may have cut their teeth serving the underserved uh, uh, conservative community, and they may have um, they have a couple of bright spots, but they're still a media company with their critical centers of gravity, their people living in deep blue media centers. And they're just, the divide is so harsh, you're seeing even Fox News move to the left. Wow, that, that's super interesting. Okay, so, you know, we, since we started off with the, uh, we started off talking about the Supreme Court, let's move on to, you know, why does, why does the Supreme Court matter? Let, let's talk about personal freedoms and uh, the mask mandate. So what's going on over there in America? Here in China, people are still wearing masks. Uh, what's going on in the United States as far as the mandates and stuff? Yeah, well, what you see is some people have gotten really authoritarian, and it's caused some real lashback, and, and you're seeing an insane level of polarization. Um, personally, I think for, in, for the most part, in public, people should probably be wearing masks out of politeness. But there is – you have a camp that has attached almost like a, the significance of a religious totem to mask wearing. It's becoming a way to signal virtue. It's becoming uh, this insane thing. There, there was a case in – I think it was Miami. A man fired warning shots in a hotel lobby, he discharged a fire, did he discharge his firearm or did he just wave it around? I think he discharged it in a warning shot 
because a lady wasn't wearing her mask in the lobby. We have news reports. I, I, I picked some from around the English-speaking world. There's a news report here. A mom watching her kid in an afternoon football game. She's socially distanced in bleachers, outdoors, in broad daylight. It's warm out. She's not wearing a mask because she has a medical reason not to wear a mask. But the law enforcement officers actually dragged hands and tasered her for resisting as they banned her from the premises. Her son was playing the game. She was there to watch her son and take him home. Uh, the, 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 uh, she was socially distanced. There was nobody around her. There was no danger to anyone. This is an incident that defied all common sense, all medical reality, and frankly, it is abusing a person with some kind of disability. You know, maybe not a, a, a permanent disability, but for some reason, it's not appropriate for some people. There are various reasons that it's not appropriate for some people to wear masks. And she had one of those reasons. It's it's. But you have some. You you create this mandate creates a. Uh, you have a mandate where people are have become so zealous. You have these zero tolerance enforcement environments, and now you're creating an incident, where you have an actual confrontation with law enforcement, where you're bringing potentially deadly force into the situation, because someone can't wear a mask. And there was no danger to anyone. The greatest danger was posed by the confrontation with the law enforcement. Uh, you, can, you can criticize her for not following the directives and then suing the school district later. Uh, but at the same time, and I'd be with you on that, but, but at the same time, you also have to criticize the policy that has zero tolerance enforcement. This is not a person who is sick. This is a person who there is a sliver of a chance might be sick. And guess what? Her son is playing on the field. So if she's sick, it, he's probably sick. I, 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 I don't get that. You have another incident in Montreal, Quebec. Police tackle and arrest a man in Tim Hortons for not wearing a mask. They actually pepper sprayed him. Do you know what happens when you fire pepper spray, law enforcement grade pepper spray, inside a closed building like a Tim Hortons. It doesn't sound is, pleasant. What's that? It does, that does not sound pleasant at all. Yeah, and this is a Canadian Tim Hortons. Have you ever been in those? They're not fat like Americans. They're, everything's smaller in Canada. The portions are smaller. The seats are smaller. The tables are smaller. The square footage in the building is probably smaller. I'm, I'm guessing there were a lot of unhappy people around there, and God only knows what, what that did to the food. But here's the thing. There was plexiglass between the man and the cashier. He was trying to order a coffee. There were, The mask mandate rules were very confusing. It's not clear. He, he, he didn't have to wear a mask while he was drinking the coffee, but apparently the, the cops were, 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 somebody was irritated because he didn't wear the mask while he was ordering the coffee. So law enforcement was called and got involved. And uh, during the entire period of the encounter with law enforcement, he could if the encounter hadn't happened, he would have gotten his coffee and been exempt from the mandate until he finished his coffee. And it, this this is this is insane. There's another incident that happened. A woman who has a medical exemption from wearing a mask, so she was using a scarf to cover her face, was seen by a law enforcement officer, and he actually he confronted her. She got snippy because people are exhausted with being called on the carpet about masks. 
And so he wound up choking her because law enforcement is, is, is under a lot of stress with this shit, too. Nobody joins the police department to become a mask cop. Uh, th this is this is leading to levels of, of utter insanity and violence. There, there's a blog post I included in the notes. Top 10 victims of violence because they weren't wearing masks. This is from September. It's just a series of incidents. But what's happening is you're getting a lot of people... Are, are Have you ever seen someone remove their mask in order to sneeze? It's the funniest uh, thing in the world. Yeah, Nobody, I've seen that. Yeah, nobody wants to wear a mask after they've sneezed in it. So the, the instinct is to remove it in order to sneeze and then put it back on. What the hell's the point of the mask? <laughs> what the question. hell's the point of the mask? I mean, I have been assured over and over and over again that I'm an idiot if I think that the point of the mask is to keep me from catching COVID. And if my argument is that masks won't protect me from COVID, I'm absolutely right and I'm an idiot if I think that's relevant. I've been informed again and again. The, pro the point of the mask is that if I contract COVID, it helps prevent me from spreading it too far by interfering with how my breath particles are dispersed. But everyone takes their mask off when they sneeze. Masks probably work great in theory, but the practice is not living up to the theory. The CDC just came out with a study. 85% of people positive with COVID were wearing masks. Well, if you have such extraordinary mask compliance in your society, how do you have so many people positive with COVID if the masks are so useful? My, 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 my suspicion is when you're going through your entire day wearing a damn mask, it, it's clothing. It's not medical equipment you start to get comfortable with it you treat it differently the practice of wearing a mask is not as foolproof as the theory of wearing a mask and so it's not as effective in practice in the real world as it is in the theory of a statistical model and the fact that people are becoming so addicted to the idea of masks will save us and the evil doers who refuse to wear masks are killing us all that it's leading to this violence this is just insanity Wear a mask to be polite. Cross the road if you see someone being rude enough not to wear a mask. But for God's sakes, don't get violent with people because a hel an obviously healthy person isn't wearing a mask to protect you against a disease that there's a 99.999% chance they don't have. This, this is utter insanity. And, and you, you have, when, when you see so many people going batshit lunacy on one side, of course... For some reason, we always have to have the polar opposite reaction, and we get batshit lunacy on the other side, and we have um, uh, people who are refusing masks no matter what, although they're a lot fewer in number than the press would have you believe. But there, there is utter insanity, and it, the, the I can't believe I'm about to say this phrase. The voice of reason on the issue appears to be President Donald Trump. <laughs> last okay. night in okay. his town hall uh, last night in his town hall he talked about people touching their faces with the masks the masks aren't as effective as you think but hey I'm all for masks you should wear masks but I'm not going to mandate you wearing masks I, I, I think mask wearing is just one piece of the puzzle in Sweden there's no masks they had a rough time at first but what they found is that um if they'd done a better job of protecting the elderly in the uh, elderly homes, they would have had a much easier time at first. Most of their rough time wouldn't have happened, but they're, they're doing great.
the masks are one piece of the puzzle, and it's not even a necessary piece of the puzzle if you make other other if you put other pieces in place. But if you're if you're going to have masks, that's great. But don't go choking people. Don't go pepper spraying people. Don't go tasing people over masks. Make it a politeness right, well, thing, not not a I'm going to call the cops thing. You, you've, the, it's it's hilarious because the same people that are calling to defund the police are the same ones that want the police to tase, tase you and choke slam you if you don't have a damn diaper on your face. <laughs> yeah, that, that is interesting, you know. But I wonder if isn't part of this a law enforcement problem? Because if, if police are dragging citizens around because they don't wear masks, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that that points to the problem of excessive power in the police department. Well, what happens is every time you create a, a law enforcement encounter, you introduce the possibility of deadly force. In law enforcement, there is something called a continuum of force. How much force is appropriate for this level of resistance? When that mom is sitting in those stands and she refuses to wear a mask, somebody talks to the cops and says, hey, so -and -so, that lady over there isn't masking up. I feel unsafe. The cops are compelled to say, hey, the rules here are you have to mask up. The mom says, well, I have a medical exemption, blah, blah, blah. The cop says, well, the way the rules were explained to me, that there is no medical exemption, so you need to mask up. She refuses to mask up. Now, he's in a position. He is performing security for the game. He is in a position where he has to either make the uh, – he has to now eject her. So he tells her, all right, well, you're, you're not allowed to be here in that case. You're trespassing. I need you to leave. She says, my son's right there. I'm not leaving my son. They go back and forth a little. She won't leave. He has just told her you're not welcome here. Now she's trespassing, and he is security. It is his job now to arrest her for trespassing. So now you've escalated this to an arrest scenario. Now she's resisting arrest. She won't come along peacefully. Now force has to be used. That's how, so he starts to grab her arm. She's struggling. She's, so now he, now he goes for the taser. He's using the, the non-lethal or some call it less lethal force to, to disrupt her nervous system, get her body into submission so that he can cuff her and take her away. The, this is standard continuum of force. This is every time you ask law enforcement to solve your piddly ass dispute you are introducing the continuum of force, and there are times that it ends in death. Remember Eric Garner? I what remember. was his big crime? Selling loose cigarettes, I think. His, his official crime was selling Lucy's. It was a tax violation. He was he, the storekeeper. He was, he, he was scaring off customers or, or making customers uncomfortable. Storekeepers didn't like that. They made a complaint to the NYPD. The NYPD goes and checks it out. They say, okay, here's this infraction we can get him on. They make the, the stop. He resists. He tries to flee. They take him down uh, to the ground. They, they, he, then he resists. So they go with the, the chokehold, the carotid choke. That is, that is how his confrontation happened. It was the continuum of force over this small thing. When you criminalize, every time you criminalize a behavior, every time you criminalize an action, you introduce a continuum of force which can and sometimes does end in death. 
This is why attorneys tell you don't resist, even if the cops are wrong, don't resist. Comply and complain later. And that's where someone would say that, that mom in the stands. It's wrong that this situation happened. It's also She also had a chance to prevent it from escalating to that point by complying in the moment and then complaining later, going through the proper channels to complain later. In her case, she was probably triggered to fight or flight because they're taking her, they're literally taking her away from her child. And it was a very morally wrong thing to do. It was probably the procedurally correct thing to do, but it was a morally wrong procedure. She posed no danger to anyone. It was just mask hysteria put into the rulemaking that created this rule, this, this, this landmine that everyone stepped on that day. So maybe, does this mean that the protesters, you know, we've had this summer of protests, do they have a point about law enforcement? That's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, you know, so oh. I think definitely I understand the continuum of force. And, you know, you know, one thing that's interesting, you know, about Chinese culture and Chinese society is you're right. They don't call the police for piddly little things. Uh, ordinary citizens will never call the police because they know that you can't control what happens when they get here, right? Yep. And you would never want to purposely introduce or invite the government into your life in such a way. So this is something we can learn from. We got to get the police out of our lives, right? Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think um, I think much of the issue that I, I see two issues with this uh, this apprehension of law enforcement, this this tension with law enforcement that we see today. I see two major issues. First off is it's something the law enforcers themselves have little or no control over, and it's the fact that we're trying to criminalize everything. And this is one of the big things that I think really exposes the hypocrisy or the emptiness of the Black Lives Matter leadership is that they'll, they'll, they'll chant defund the police and they'll, they'll march to defund the police, but at no point do they advocate in any meaningful way changing the stupid laws that the police are obligated to enforce. At no point do they say, end prohibition. At no point do they say, legalize heroin and put a damn excise tax on it. At no point do they say, let's take this massive industry of intoxicants out of the black market, out of the cartels, out of the hands of criminals and sociopaths, and let's legalize it, bring it into the light of day, and make sure that the profits from the industry can be directed to rebuilding our communities through investment. At no point do they say that. They're perfectly content with letting these massive industries be run by elements in the shadows while law enforcement is, is robbed of the resources to address the spillover of the prohibition. I don't want law enforcement to be robbed of the resources to find the drive-by shootist who took out his target and eight other bystanders, including a little girl. I want them to be able to find that son of a bitch and put him away. What I, what, 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 what I do else I want is for that drive-by shooting to never have happened because his drug trade is legal, not illegal. Once prohibition ended, the Al Capones stopped controlling alcohol, and turf wars were no longer settled with bombs and bullets. Now they're settled with babes in bikinis on TV ads. Uh, 
it, it, it's it, it's but but when we have we have these people who claim to be trying to reimagine society, who claim to want to reduce the violence between the state and the people. But when it comes to the fundamental drivers of that violence, when it comes to the gang conflict with the criminal, with the, that emerges from the criminalization of the free will exchange of goods and services, they're silent. They are silent. That's one issue. Another issue is these metropolitan areas seem to be run. Corrupt. Yeah. It's insane. It's it, it, it really became clear during the lockdowns from in February, March, and April, where you, you, you'd go onto social media and you'd see video of Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies chasing a jogger down on a beach or getting in a boat to pull a surfer out of the water. And these are people who are alone. They're not harming anyone. They're just violating an insane order that, for the first time in human history, seeks to quarantine the healthy. Uh, they're violating these insane, reprehensible, morally uh, indefensible orders, but they're posing no threat to anyone. But these law enforcement agencies are so in the pockets of the authoritarian governments they serve that they'll chase down, they'll chase these people down. And then on the other hand, in the more rural areas, you had the law enforcement officers who said, uh, certain of these rules aren't constitutional, aren't compatible with liberty. I'm not going to enforce them. So, yeah, when you have when you have someone with a badge putting their pension above their, their duty, their pension above their oath, that's a big problem. And that it's going to be it's going to be the tip of the iceberg. You're going to have other problems that manifested before it gets to that point. But anyone who says they're trying to reform the police by starving their budget but not their responsibilities is full of shit. <laughs> I totally agree. So, hey, next question, you know, last big question. What happens if Trump loses? What are we going to see? Uh, if Trump loses, I think we will see violence in the streets. I think it will be less violence than if he wins. If he wins, I think we're going to see a massive, massive tantrum by the anarchist left, the, the authoritarian left and the anarchist left. And if he loses, I think the tantrum they show is going to be not as big. It's going to be just a show of force to intimidate Biden to cave to their demands. Um, that's in the immediate term. In the long term, I think if, if, if the Democrats gain the power to do what they want, I think you're going to see court packing. You're going to see a lot of changes. You're going to see uh, statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. I think Puerto Rico will become pissed about statehood. Uh, right now, they, they have a really good arrangement that's working pretty well for their particular uh, government. But I, I think that uh, you're going to wind up seeing the, the middle parts of the country, the parts of the country that grow food and produce energy for the rest of the country, uh, they're going to be so put upon, they're going to be so estranged, the, they're going to be so, uh, to be frank, shit on, that we're going to see a nullification crisis. It'll probably be in slow motion, uh, maybe a decade to unfold, but we've had the left nullifying laws for a long time. Sanctuary City this, uh, I'm not going to prosecute marijuana that, etc., and we've had the right saying, look, I may not agree with the law, but it's a law, so I have to enforce it. And in recent years, we've seen the right say, you know what, 
there are only so many laws I don't agree with that I can justify enforcing. My, 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 my views are based on certain principles that are greater than these laws. And so this year we started to see the Second Amendment sanctuary counties. And if you go to the Tenth Amendment Center, they will criticize these sanctuary measures for being toothless and ineffective. I think what you're going to see is this is a Rubicon moment. This is something where on the right wing, they, they, they've, they've said, I, we can't do this anymore. We can't blindly enforce laws anymore. And I think as the left becomes more and more authoritarian and steamrolls them more and more blatantly, they're going to become more and more comfortable and they're going to get more proficient about pre creating nullification acts with teeth. And I think we're going to just see pockets of the country nullify federal law and create their own parallel systems and you're going to wind up seeing blue areas and red areas until finally the crisis becomes so acute there will be minor conflict and hope uh, and cooler heads will prevail some kind of treaty of dissolution will will prevent the uh, minor conflict from erupting into a civil war a full-fledged civil war we we have nuclear weapons now and nuclear armed countries don't have full-fledged civil wars there there aren't enough crazy people who who uh gain that much control to make that happen. They're, they're, the cooler heads tend to prevail. Well, that that is really good news. Good to hear that. So thanks for uh, talking to us, Gabe. And, you know, it, it's just an interesting time. We've got less than a month to the next election. It feels like this could be one of the most historic elections in American history. I, I think so. I, I, I get this vibe I've had this vibe for the last several years that we're we're in the 1850s, 1860s era somewhere. I don't know if this is more of a John Brown era vibe or a, a Lincoln Douglas era vibe, but uh, this is going to be a significant turning point. And the, unfortunately, if there if Trump wins, that's no guarantee that the civil divorce can be avoided. It just gives us another four years to figure out a way to avoid it. Okay, either way, it's going to be exciting for people who care about who care about uh, history and politics and what's happening in the world. So, well, hey, you know great, that old great, ancient great. Chinese pro proverb: "May you live in interesting okay. times." Yeah, certainly. You know, growing up in the two thousands, and you know, I remember the nineties, and it the things <laughs> things were not as interesting back then. That's for sure. <laughs> I never felt that our country was was on the precipice of uh, such incredible changes. No, and, me neither. Uh, possibly violent changes. So, yeah, these are interesting times. Yep. Thank you for listening to this presentation of Truth and Narrative. Check out the show notes for more background on the topics discussed. Please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Send comments, suggestions, and questions to truthandnarrative at protonmail.com. See you next week. Thank you, everybody.